Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Bad Wolf Podcast. I'm Martin and on this episode I will be joined by comic book writer Stu Perrins. Now before we begin I just want to say there are some sound issues in the first 10 minutes. We recorded this on the zoom.com and as you will all be aware now when the zoom.com goes wrong it goes spectacularly wrong. In the second half I give him a call on his mobile and it sounds fine. All right let's just jump straight into it. I'm now joined by Stu Perrins. Stu, I'm going to start off really simply. How are you? Quite hot. It's, I think it's probably the hottest day of the year, but other than that, I'm pretty good, man. You? I'm all right. Yeah, it's about 28 where I am. It's unseasonably yeah, hot. Yeah, I think we're about 28, 29 here as well. So, Whereabouts you know. are you? Uh, West Midlands. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Surrey. So there's plenty of like um, men walking around with their tops off who really shouldn't have their tops off. That seems to be the, the uh, <laughs> thing around here, unfortunately. I appreciate you giving me my anonymity. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sure. For anyone who's not familiar with your work, how would you describe what you do? I don't think I have a sort of set style as such. I mean, I try to um, talk about sort of use sort of fantastical situations and talk about um, sort of, I don't know, social politics, I suppose it is. There was a book I did a little a few years ago called uh, Whatever Happened to the Archetype, and the, the concept behind that was using an ageing superhero to discuss um, society's views of the elderly. So it's that sort of thing. But, I mean, the emphasis on the whole for me is to make it fun, even if I'm talking about something very serious, you know, close to my heart or whatever, it has to be fun. That's not to say that it's... It has to be stupid, but it has to be high on the fantastical element for me anyway, because I think we've got too much uh, grim and gritty in the real world. We don't need any more deconstructing of, uh, <laughs> of anything, really. Fun comics, uh, that people, that there's a message, even if it's quite a sort of simple message, I can't, I don't, I try not to sort of create things where it's good guys, bad guys. There has to be a sort of real human sort of uh, conflict. I've noticed there's this trend in entertainment is that when everything's kind of okay, comics, films, TV shows, they get really grim and gritty. But when the reality is really grim and gritty, people yeah. want that escapism. I think maybe that's the problem people had with um, the late Superman films is that at the moment the world is grim and gritty and people just want hope up on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why, you know, with obviously with the pandemic and everything else that's gone in the last sort of 18 18 months to two years, I think people do want some sort of escapism and do want hope. And, and I think probably you probably hit the nail on the head. Like Superman is probably the perfect embodiment of all that stuff. If you've just watched Sky News and these terrible atrocities and, and things have happened, you then don't want to watch a film about exact the real world. It's not, well, I don't anyway, you know. I mean, I do like darker stuff, but it has to be, you know, it has to be black and white. There has to be sort of two sides to it because it's just... The real world at the moment is just it's awful. So, so why you know why add to you know why add to the misery? Yeah. So you're here to talk about your latest creation, which is Chrono Cat. So what can you tell us about that character? Um, well, the the idea came from it's sort of the imagined uh, adventure, uh, time travel adventures of our cat and. Charlie in the comic is based, it, it looks exactly, not exactly like, because Micah uh, doesn't talk, <laughs> but um, it's based on it. So she went, she went, Charlie went, in real Charlie, went through a phase of bringing back, not just dead stuff, but 
really odd stuff that I don't know where she got this, where where's this come from, you know, where's this come from? And that sort of started this thing of, well, you know, where is she going? And I made some sort of jokey thing with the kids that she's going off to this place and doing this stuff. But So that was the sort of the start of it, that she goes on these sort of adventures and then she comes back and is a normal cat. And then that sort of developed and it became, you know, with me, I sort of have an idea and I sort of scribble it down or store it away somewhere. And then over time, it sort of develops. And when I go back to it, it's sort of got legs and there's a world and all this sort of stuff. But it isn't, it's an all ages thing. Um, and it's the way I would describe it is a Saturday morning cartoon on paper. That's the, That was the sort of aesthetic we were going for. It had to be quite, not had to be, but I wanted it to be quite bright. Yeah. And fun. It had to, I mean, I just wanted it to. I want. I was essentially. I was writing something for seven or eight year old me that would go. There has to be. There's something. Wow. On every, almost every page, it's like explosions, and stuff, and and things like that. And I just. I would. I was not bogged down or worried about sort of people thinking it was ridiculous or sort of silly or the character names are silly because I wanted it to be sort of almost OTT in that, that the bad guy has got a bad guy name and, you know, it's quite, you know, obvious. But again, as I was saying, as I was saying earlier, it is about a real thing. It is about sort of making, taking responsibility for your actions and, and that was, so as I said, it was that, so there is a real thing behind it. It's not just, there's the, here's the good guys, there's the bad guys. I mean, sort of fell in love with the character. There's certain, I mean, I'm proud of all of everything I've worked on, but there's something about this character and uh, Megatomic Battle Rabbit, which I read, which is um, I feel that I've found my voice, if you like, in a lot sure. of ways, and that it's that sort of that sort of like comfort in it. I'm quite sort of proud of the characters, and 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 not that, as I say, not that I'm proud of the other stuff I've done, but there's something about this that I, um, I, I know I'll look back on it in five years' time, and I'll be just as proud of it. Oh, well, I don't, well, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't know, but I, I can't imagine I'll look back and go, well, I wish I'd have done it differently, or or I wish oh, that should have been called this, that should have happened there. As I say, it's an all ages thing, but that's not. But it's all ages in the. It's not uh, all age. When people say all ages, that's just a slightly small way of saying <laughs> for kids. But it's not solely for children. It is. There is something in there. The way I sort of described it when I was first putting it together, as I said, just said, is a Saturday morning cartoon paper, and it's it's for children, but it's also for the parents. She sure. used to watch those Saturday morning cartoons, so there's that sort of crossover thing. Uh, but you are, and it's also set in the same um, universe as uh, Megaton Battle Rabbit, so um, there's that as well. Oh, so it's, sort of, no, it's not a sequel as such. It's like a, so it's like um, I have sort of like dropped in the first issue. There's very, very. It's not like you need to know the one to know the other. It's, it's nothing like that. I'm not doing anything too sort of over the top. But there's a couple of few easter eggs in the first issue and there's a massive one towards the end of the third one um so i almost want uh people who've been sort of conscious of my other work to sort of be taken by surprise it's not quite it's not obvious but then once you read go oh, actually this is clearly the same sure. clearly by the same world and stuff. i just want to touch on a point you made about your you feel that you'll still be happy with this in five years as a writer, do you ever stop rewriting? Mm. I mean, how good are you at just being able to let your babies go out there and, and be what they are? That is something I sometimes sort of struggle with sometimes because I can't... I think there's something in you you instinctively know. Like, you know if something's not working. Sure. So 
I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever done a first draft and then just rewritten it and it's done. So I saw I mean I bet things have been rewritten sort of dozens of times in some cases and then been completely scrapped and then started again and then that's been rewritten. So but I do know or I think I know that when something's ready or and there, but I mean what I tend to do when I've got to the point where I think I'm happy with it, I'll leave it alone for like a week, then I go back to it with uh, slightly fresher eyes and go into it. But I mean I'm quite lucky Excuse me. I'm quite lucky in the respect of the people that I'm working, I've worked with, and I'm currently working with. And it's very much a sort of a collaborative thing. And there's something in, in the third issue of Chrono Cat when Armando, the uh, the artist, said, "Oh, actually, what do you think of this?" And it wasn't like a massive change. I think it was just a slight tweak. And they go, "Oh, yeah, because that that works because of blah blah blah." I don't. I mean, nothing set in stone. I mean. I, I'm quite uh, adaptable with because ultimately, if you're a creative team, you want it all. You're all sort of, or you should be sort of all aiming for the same thing. You ultimately want it to look good and read well, and you know, obviously, set hopefully so. So yeah, I mean, I sort of I, I know when I'm at a point where I'm happy with it. Sure. But then, obviously, if there's uh, the artist or who says, actually, what do you think of this, or the editor, then I'm not sort of uh, too pig-headed to sort of not look at it again, you know. Yeah, so what's the collaborative process like? Do you like outline the story first and then send it to people? Is it kind of already fully formed when you when you submit it? Um, I well, generally speaking, I get it to doesn't again, it's not sort of nothing is sort of set in stone, but I get it the scripting process, I get it to a point where there is something to show somebody or, you know, you know, because it because in the real world it can take God knows how long to sort of do a twenty, twenty two page script. I get it to a point. I mean, sometimes there's been cases where I've just completely finished the script. So it's kind of different project to project. Or spoke to people about it. Um, yeah, it's not. It, there's no sort of set thing. I mean, there's a, um, a project I'm currently working on now, uh, which I'm really, really excited about, and that just stemmed from I put it. Oh God, probably I think it's probably the beginning of the uh, just before the first lockdown. Actually, I put a tweet. Uh, saying something like, if I ever had chat, I'd love to write a steampunk Flash Gordon. And, oh, that'd be awesome. Uh, and, and then um, this artist, John Murphy, messaged me and said, well, give it then. <laughs> we'll do it and, we'll, and, I'll, and I'll draw him out. Oh, okay. And then I'm thinking, <laughs> it was just a sort of, so that's been sort of a quite a big focus uh, writing-wise since sort of, I don't know, end of February last year. And that's going to be um, five issues. It's quite a Again, that's a fun thing, but there is a sort of a story behind it, a, a message behind it, rather. Excellent. And we got a good team working on that. Uh, as I say, John Murphy's in the art. Robin Jones, the four DC, she's in the uh, colours. So it's quite a good. I know uh, it's. I know it's going to kick ass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like there's, um, there's like I'm quite. Come on, let's. Uh, I'm quite sort of champion at the bit together, and that's called um, uh, Cosmic Debris. When it's this big. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's steampunk uh, space opera, but it's sort of partly, it's partly homage. There are a few sort of like I don't want to say spoofs because it's not a sort of uh, it's not like an alien. Yeah, can you remember the exact moment you decided you wanted to be a storyteller? Um, I'd be about um, nine or ten, and up until that point, I'd read you know, you know I was reading things like the Beano and Dandy, and then I sort of gravitated towards I think. Uh, uh, a, a comic for sort of older, slightly older kids called Oink, which is a really, uh, I don't know if he doesn't, doesn't remember it, but it's like a, was a really subversive, sort of satirical comic for it, for, you know, for the time, certainly. And then from that, 
one day after school, my mum picked me up with um, a copy of 2000 AD, which I'd had no sort of prior knowledge of until that moment. And then it sort of opened up a new world, and it was something, uh, you know, I mean, I would say incredibly cheesy, but out of this world. So, I mean, I'd had no, um, and that inspired me uh, directly to sort of make my own stuff or try and make my own stuff um, because there was of the credit boxes. Because up until that point, I had no idea, you know, on the whole, these characters just appeared. There was no, you know, the thing that these people, characters were sort of written by somebody and drawn by somebody, you know, because up until that point, um, it was just characters. There was no sort of the creators were all sort of mysteries almost. And that inspired me to sort of write my own and write my own and excuse me, draw my own comic, which was called um, Cyborg Squad, which was a, a massive, <laughs> incredible rip off of uh, Transformers and there was some sort of you know like a re- it was just robot fighting. I can't really remember a great deal about it, but um, I know there was some sort of time travel thing um, that are crowbarding. Because I'd just seen Back to the Future and was obsessed with it, <laughs> and then um, and there was something about the Ronald Reagan being a robot. I can't really, I can't really remember, but at the time it was sort of I was really proud of it. And I, I used to get my mum to sort of I used to draw these up, and uh, I get my mum to photocopy them, and uh, I used to give them out to the kids in my estate. And I think there were like twenty pages or something. There were like a fairly. It was a good, you know, chunk of work for like ten year old me anyway. Um I was really proud of it and that sort of once you if you're a creative person, once you are um suddenly aware that you can do it, it just it changes almost changes everything. Because you you get all you know, it's it's like and I've been in you know, doing different sort of creative things over the years and once you're aware that you can produce something, or like everybody starts with nothing, everything, every piece of art or, or media or anything you, everybody loves started from nothing or an idea and you built it up from there. And there's this thing that I always have this thing that just because your ideas aren't, you know, the next Star Wars or aren't the next Stranger Things or whatever, doesn't make them any less important or, or amazing because they didn't, they once didn't exist, but now they do, and that's because you had that idea. So creating stories isn't something that I don't think I'll ever, I'll ever tire of, you know. You talked about your influences there being Back to the Future, etc. when you were a kid. I mean, what inspires yeah. you and influences you now? In comics, in, com- in sort of comic creator-wise, it's people like Grant Morrison and uh, Robert Kirkman but my biggest influences are probably uh, people like Douglas Adams and um, Terry Gilliam, who have this, uh, uh, both had a knack or had a knack of sort of, none of their stories had really had a, there was never, on the whole, there was never a backstory. You were just sort of thrown into the world as a reader or a viewer or whatever. And um, you know exactly what it is because they, they, uh, the, the, the both were both incredible world uh, creators. You know exactly what it is, and you, there's never a, you just start at the sort of start at that point. There's never you know ever, and I just think there's something really amazing about that. that. And Terry Pratchett was he's probably in that amongst that for me. You, you read about you sort of read about a character, and you know instinctively how they talk and how they walk, um, but you're not told. So it's quite those are my influence. I mean, Terry Gilliam is my absolute sort of hero. And, um, you know, um, his work, I find incredible. I mean, it's not everything is just been incredible, but most of the things I love, or, you know, a lot of the things I love, he has in some way, shape or form sort of involved in it. Yeah, he's he's a very visually creative kind of director when he makes films. Um, 
Brazil's a testament for that. Oh, that is just, I mean, that is incredible. I mean, that as a piece of work and getting, you know, Robert De Niro to play a hairless plumber, I mean, yeah. that's got to that's gotta be something. But I think, I mean, some, I mean, things like the Brothers Grimm didn't, for me, didn't quite work. And, but he has made, I mean, you're right, it's the way he, I think his style has been sort of ripped off a lot. He's sort of the look, like the set things. I think a lot, a lot of his, you could see a lot of his influence in things like um, Pirates of the Caribbean. I think they tried to take a lot of his sort of nods from and things like that. But I just think he's sort of incredible. Yeah, I, I get what you mean about Pirates of the Caribbean. I've never really thought about that before. There's a few others and there's that sort of, you know, like everything looks a bit dirty. Yeah. And it's just, you know what I mean? But looks dirty, but it looks impressive. It's just weird, and that's what it, you know, like. So, but like, I mean, I, that big part of the Caribbean one only it, it occurred to me sort of like um, a few Christmases ago. I can't remember which one it was. Which was the one with? It's the one with the mermaid in a uh, in like a that crate. That might thing. be number two. That, and I remember seeing that, thinking that's really, that's really Gilliam-esque. That sort of idea of carrying a mermaid round. I can't remember <laughs> it. It's funny as that now, but um, yeah, and things like that. There's a few, and I think there's a few obvious bits and pieces in the Harry Potter films that are, you know, taking cues from him and stuff. But I mean, why they didn't get him to sort of direct it himself, why they getting somebody to do it, I don't know. <laughs> what was the most difficult part about breaking into the comic book industry? Just doing it, really. Once you sort of make it, it's making the decision and having the guts to fail. And once I got over that, and like I was saying just earlier, you can go, well, I've succeeded. It's a success. Even if it sells one copy, it's a success because it's, I've done it. I've done it. I've set out exactly what uh, I wanted to do. But that was the real thing of kind of forming an in over it. Shall I? But if, then I thought, oh, screw it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, and sort of getting over my insecurities would be probably the, uh, the biggest hurdle. Because I, as I say, like, it doesn't, I mean, I'm proud of all the work I've done. So, and, 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 I, and I fully appreciate it. It's not, it's not going to be for everybody's taste, it can't be. But um, I'm happy with that. And so I've got, so got over those things. And there are times when you sort of like, sort of, I question myself and, you know, I'll get a, a, really, a less than glowing review. And, um, um, but I'm cool with that. It's like, um, you know, that's fine. It's sort of getting over your own, I suppose getting over your insecurities and your own ego, I suppose. That must be a real hurdle because we are all our own worst critic. Yeah. And I imagine when you see something in print that you've kind of thought about yourself, that must be really difficult yeah. to take in. Yeah. But, I mean, ultimately, I mean, it, it sort of bothers me for a short while. And then I think, well, you know what? That person, they have at least took the time to read it. And it is ultimately an opinion, isn't it? It's not. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, it's not like it's, it's not like it's fact, if you know what I mean. It's like it's, that's just what they think. And, um but yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, you've got to let those things go and sort of, because almost when it's sort of finished, when you've, what I've sort of done my part, if you, if you like, and it's sort of out into the world, sort of almost ceases to no longer belong to me. It's sort of, I know, I think I know what it is, you know, what do you think this is? And then it's stuff I've written, you know, I've written and people just haven't sort of, you know, got, quite got what I've got in that fine. It's like, it's not. I don't, you know, it's, it's the criticism is all constructive. It's not anything. Criticism is constructive. Then it's fine. It's all, as I say, it bothers me for a second, and then I go, oh, okay, I, I get where you're coming from. You know. Sure. So, what books are you reading right now? What are you really enjoying? Yeah, I'm going. Well, actually, I'm going back. I'm doing, I'm doing a load of. I'm um, I'm rereading a load of old stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, in fact, I'm, re- I'm going to rereading all the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books at the minute. Oh, excellent. 
just is so cheering myself up with some end of the world hygiene. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm reading. I mean, I just think I needed some sort of, you know, well-written silliness to I describe it. But yeah, that, and I'm re- I've re- recently reread, I don't know if you've ever read the um, uh, Grant Morrison when he did the, uh, a, mi- a mini-series, a Dan Dare mini-series. Yeah, oh God, I think it's probably 90. <laughs> and I've reread that recently, and that's just incredible. Like, it's one of those things, like, you read it and it's so jealous. What do you know? It's so good. Um, but yeah, it's just like going over old stuff. I don't know why. I don't know if I'm getting sort of nostalgic in my old age, but yeah. <laughs> not, that's not, I'm not, this, this is not me saying, oh God, all new books, all new, everything new is crap. That's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying, but I'm just doing a load of, um, yeah, old stuff. I don't know why. Stuff I've already read. I don't know. <laughs> so what's your favourite... What's your favourite iteration of the Hitchhiker's Guide? Because I feel like everyone's really precious about the one that got them into it. Well, my favourite isn't the one that got me into it. So, so I re- I remember watching reruns of the first series when I was a kid, and then from that discover, you know, discovering it was a radio book and blah blah blah. But I think probably the book, my favourite, because I think in the book a lot of a lot of the humour is in the um, story rather than the dialogue yeah sure you know well, so it, like the way the, the descriptions of things and the way it is I mean it is it's sort of chock full you know of jokes all the way through and sort of witticisms and things I mean I have a sort of depending on my mood I don't know how, I mean I don't know how I feel about the film I still don't know how I feel about the film <laughs> yeah so at the time I really liked the film but now I can see why it I mean it's too long for it to get there I mean yeah, well, it was, the, it was the film that got me into the franchise because I, I'd heard oh, really? of it. Yeah, I'd heard of it. Obviously, I'd heard of it. Yeah. I had no prior knowledge. And then the film came. I love the film. I still like it now. Uh, but I left I mean, the I... cinema and I went straight into Waterstones and bought the books because that inspired wow. me. And yeah, it's still the film that I defend. And, well, I like the film. Sort of. Don't get me wrong. I love the film. I do like the film. But there's bits in it I think, huh. That's almost amazing. But I don't know if it's because I loved the book before. Like, so I've gone in and, and I'm thinking of, um, you know, the, like Simon Jones and the original cast of the TV series and they're in my head. And But I think everybody in the film's great. But I think, because I remember, I mean, my, the, girl, the girl I was going to have is at the time, um, went to see at the cinema and I've never seen anybody friend for any time of the film. And, um, said she was just looking at me like what is this because it's not quite <laughs> linear is it and like stuff happens you know the improbability drive and all that stuff and she just couldn't understand there but things just happen and why is that a whale now and why is it turned into this oh yeah but that that's the point and it's supposed to be it's ridiculous looking back it's, just, it's, just, it's amazing that franchise was given to a first-time director oh god yeah like because I was really when the announcer were doing it because I've been on on making the film I think since like the late 80s I think I think there was one talk of what of a swan with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd in I think and um and then yeah because it is sort of when they I remember written announcing they were going to make the film and he's definitely going ahead and uh, is it Hammer and Tongs I'm trying to yeah I think so yeah yeah and it's the first time I wrote it's only done like music it's done like a blur video you <laughs> sure <laughs> but I mean, like, and there's some big names in it, you know, and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it does look incredible because I've seen uh, at the time the film came out. Um, I, I worked in the um, a museum, and they had um, 
uh, an exhibition about aliens like you know the fantasy and the possible reality of it and they add some of the um the vogon uh models and stuff in the suit oh that must have been incredible uh, to see and they, and they are like incredible like they are sort of human size and it is you can see up close and the hair and everything it was like oh this is amazing <laughs> the detail on it is just incredible all right, Stu, I know you're very busy and I've taken up enough of your time. So why don't you just tell people where they can find Chrono Cat and where they can find you online? Uh, oh, the best place to find me online is Twitter. It's just under at Stu Parents. And Chrono Cat is currently available through Comicology and Amazon and through Marcosia. Excellent. Stu, thank you so much for giving me your time today. No problem. Thank you very much. Equipment used in the creation of this feature was purchased through a grant from Gray and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. (laughs) 